0: If we have chosen the position in life in which we can most of all work for mankind, no burdens can bow us down because they are sacrifices for the benefits of all. Then we shall experience no petty limited selfish joy, that our happiness will belong to millions, our deeds will live on quietly but perpetually at work, and over our ashes will be shed the tears of noble people. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were philosophers, political theorists and economists responsible for writing the communist manifesto, which is today probably the most widely recognized text outlining a system for a communal economy. An economy where work is done to fulfill the needs of one's community rather than to satiate personal desires. An economy where goods and services are distributed by needs rather than by means. An economy Where people could not rest on their laurels of being land or capital owners to get by without ever needing to contribute any personal effort. This system lies in direct contrast to the other extreme of the economic spectrum which is laissez-faire capitalism. Laissez-faire, literally translating from french to let it be or leave it alone, pretty much sums up this economic system. It advocates for leaving capitalism alone entirely to do its thing because no government can allocate resources as effectively as the free market can. Both of these opposing theories are very extreme and for what it's worth don't exist in any modern economies anywhere around the world today, despite what some nations might have you believe. Nonetheless, they are still important to understand because the best way to wrap your head around any spectrum, be it political, economic, colour is to understand the extremities of that spectrum and place the more widely accepted ideologies somewhere in between those two extremes. So what are the economic arguments for and against a communist economic system? What are the economic arguments for and against a completely free market? And finally are there any examples of these extreme systems actually working throughout history? This episode of economics explained was made possible by our fans on patreon. If you would like to gain early access to these videos before they are uploaded to youtube as well as participate in exclusive Q&A sessions which are now held every saturday at 9.30 eastern standard time please consider supporting our channel at patreon.com slash economics explained. Amongst all of these conflicting ideologies of communism versus unfettered capitalism and even more mild disagreements like Keynesian control measures versus limited government pundits. It must be remembered that we are still figuring this all out. Capitalism as we know it today only really first emerged into the world in the 16th and 17th century and even then this was only in places like the Netherlands and England that were comparatively well ahead of the rest of the world. Other nations were up until recently still operating under a system of rigid class structures based on birthrights and land ownership. This divide was only accelerated when the industrial revolution took off and all of this made a few men start thinking, maybe this isn't the best way to do things. Maybe the world was overdue for a revolution of the commons. The central economic problem is humans have unlimited desires but only limited resources in which to fulfil those desires. This is true on an individual, community, national and even global level. I want a new Porsche 911 turbo, but I don't have the resources in which to fulfil that desire. On a national level most governments would love to give their citizens free healthcare and university and world class infrastructure while also reducing taxes, but they don't have the resources to do so. Of course these issues can be overcome by increasing resources, let's say Everybody watching, liking and subscribing for that new Porsche or a nation finding a treasure trove of natural resources to fund all of those nice things without needing taxes. But eventually humans get used to this new normal and they want even more. What this means is that the central economic problem has no solution, but instead it just gives out more questions. These questions are what should be produced, how should it be produced, and who should it be produced for. If these questions can be answered, the problem isn't solved per se, but a workable solution has been found. Now Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels sought to provide one such solution. You see the world in the 1800s was getting wealthier. Steam power, railroads, telegrams all enabled business to be done and wealth to be created on a scale that would have been unimaginable some 100 years earlier. But all the while living conditions had not improved for average workers. And in pollution filled cities lined with soul crushing factories, they had probably gone backwards. This was because average workers did not control the means of production. Land labor and capital is what is needed to make anything. Up until the industrial revolution, farmland and labor had been the most important pieces of this puzzle. Kings and lords and nobilities owned the land, and the serfs worked the land with their labor. The advent of modern manufacturing suddenly meant that capital which is things like machinery also became a very important factor and this was primarily owned still by the nobility. Labour was made far more efficient by capital but labourers were not the secret ingredient so they didn't really benefit from it in the same way that capital owners did. In this sense the aristocracy in conjunction with an early free market had answered the questions of the central economic problem. What should be produced? Primarily more factories and machines to make factory owners even richer and after that eh, maybe some consumer goods. How should it be produced? It should be produced in said factories with a combination of heavy machinery and low paid labourers. And for whom should it be produced? Well the people that own the factories and those who can afford it of course. These answers did not suit the authors of the communist manifesto at all. And they argued that workers needed to leverage their position as one of the crucial factors of production. The problem with this was individual bargaining power. Even during the height of industrial growth work was not easy to get and if an individual worker demanded more pay or better conditions they would be laughed out of work only to be replaced by a seemingly endless line of eager employees. If these workers acted as a single community though, They would have much more bargaining power because it's a lot harder to replace all of the workers in a factory than it is to replace just one. This in many ways is similar to modern unionist movements where workers will strike to demand better pay or conditions, but this wasn't so simple in the 1800s. For starters, factory owners still had a lot more negotiating power than even their entire pool of factory workers. Even if by some miracle someone managed to organize an industry-wide strike, factory owners could just sit back on their estates, wind their operations down and wait for workers to starve into submission. Worker protections, welfare and labor laws were definitely not on the side of workers in this time period. So something on a grander scale was required, a revolution. Marx didn't necessarily advocate for a revolution in his writing, but said it was more of an inevitability. Workers would only accept so much before they forcefully made themselves the owners of land and capital, seize the means of production, is literally a prescription for a revolution to take land and capital out of the hands of the few who own it and split it equitably amongst the labour that uses it. So the answer to the question of the central economic problem becomes... What should be produced? Primarily more factories and machines to make factory owners even richer and eh, after that maybe a few consumer goods. The only difference this time was that the factory owners were the people, at least in theory. Nonetheless, most nations that adopted Marxist policies adopted a series of five year economic plans that pushed the development of heavy industry above all else. How should it be produced? From people according to their means. In plain English the government will decide who does what based on their skills and ability. This is actually not too dissimilar from a capitalist system, it's just that instead of a company or a government agency running you through a job interview, it's a central labour department. And finally the big one, for whom should these goods be produced? They should be allocated to everybody according to their needs. If a single mother has 10 children and no way to work. She should get a bigger house with more amenities than a single neurosurgeon because the doctor doesn't need as much space. Now of course this is a big sticking point where communism starts to unravel, but it's not in the way that you might think. Worker motivation looks to be the big problem here right? Why would someone put all that time and effort into studying to become a doctor if they would be given better amenities by just having lots of children? And in a sense this seems true. But, the actual abundance of slack labour as it came to be known was actually pretty minimal in places like the Soviet Union or early communist China. The reason was that workers were motivated in different ways. Ironically enough Ludwig von Mises, a famous Austrian economist, a school of economics that stands in complete opposition to communism and advocates heavily for the free market actually gives some insight on this. Psychic profits are the benefits received by an individual for doing something that can't be quantified. Winning a game of football, donating to charity or being recognized as a leader in your respective field all give people a sense of pride and accomplishment in their work. If anything this could be thought of as the warm fuzzies and this has been shown to be a stronger motivator than money alone. Think about it like this, most of you watching are paid to go to work and do a job. Your motivation at that job is to work as little as possible without getting fired and potentially work hard enough to get recognized for a promotion. A living salary is a fantastic motivator for doing the bare minimum, like getting out of bed and getting to work on time, but a terrible motivator for doing much beyond that. If the fundamentals of economics are to be believed, it actually incentivizes people to work as little as possible, the maximal possible output for the minimal possible work, i.e. getting paid for the minimal possible input. Now discretionary effort is what makes all the difference here, and there are many ways to get it, be that amazing management, personal recognition for achievements, or nationwide devotion to a common cause. All of these will result in psychic profits for the workers that are putting in more than the bare minimum. All this is to say that worker motivation wasn't really the achilles heel of communism, it was actually more so the decisions made around what to produce. In a communist system the laws of supply and demand don't set prices, the government does. The government decides what is produced and for whom it is produced. But without this supply and demand these government planners lose valuable insight into what people actually want. They can't get up to date information about what consumers need and as a result there is often a surplus of one thing and shortages of others. This is before the added complications of time preferences and subjective value. To compensate, citizens create black markets to trade the things that governments don't provide, which destroys the trust in the state. People no longer respect the idea that the government can give to each according to his needs. There are famous examples of these systems going awfully wrong resulting in botched government policies like Mao's backyard furnaces and any number of the Soviet Union's 5 year plans. The reality is that human needs across an entire nation are so variable and diverse that no single agency can properly account for it no matter how well staffed they are. The free market is just the most efficient way for people to vote on what is produced and for whom it is produced. Almost every communist nation eventually realizes this and that's why of the 5 communist countries left in the world today, all of them have some system of free markets. For what it's worth, Marx actually realized this and communism itself isn't actually an economic system, but rather a process that a country goes through to transition from a capitalist state to a social nation that answers the central economic questions with these answers. The problem was of course, these answers were legendarily hard for any government to answer and the extreme political ideologies that came along with most of these economic policies did not help this process at all. So it's simple then, it looks like the more that the government interferes the more that things go wrong. Maybe the solution is just to fully enable hands off capitalism. Laissez-faire capitalism is the most extreme brand of capitalism and it advocates for governments to stay out of the economy entirely. Taxes, government spending should all be kept to a minimum or eliminated completely. Government control of fiat currency through monetary policy should be destroyed with extreme prejudice and don't even dream of government run industry. That is exclusively the role of the private sector. The argument is that in the long run private business and industry with a profit motive will be the most efficient entities for producing the goods and services of an economy because their existence depends on it. What to produce, how to produce it, and who to produce it for. You see the answers to the economic questions sound simple, but they require understanding humans and humans can be nothing if not unpredictable. Subjective preference is a term used to describe the way that people value things and gives economists some insight into how people don't always want what looks most logical. Consider this, what has more value, a vintage Lamborghini Mira or a Toyota Corolla? Well almost all of you watching would probably say the Lamborghini right? But why did you say that? Because one costs a lot more right? Even if you weren't into cars, you could sell a vintage Lamborghini for millions of dollars and buy all the Toyota Corollas you want. All that being said, the modern Toyota Corolla is objectively a better car in almost every nominal way. It's more practical, more fuel efficient, more comfortable, more reliable, and depending on the model, probably faster too. Even beyond that, more technical expertise go into producing a modern Corolla than go into producing a vintage Lamborghini. Nonetheless. The Lamborghini demands the higher price because people give it much more subjective value. Therefore it stands that an economist can never truly know how much something is worth until people have demonstrated their preference for it. These two cars are obviously an extreme example of this, but subjective value is really important for a robust economy because it helps to answer the economic questions. What to produce, how to produce it, and who to produce it for? Well. If a business can produce something that costs less, but attracts similar consumer demand, they should definitely produce that thing first before making something more difficult. If a communist government gets this wrong, so be it. We have produced an allocation of beets and tractors and corn and hydraulic presses, you get and work with what you're given. Since there is no consumer feedback, communist nations can only assume that something that takes more industrial effort to produce is of a greater value. Which is of course not always true, if a business gets any of this wrong they are no longer in business and they lose their customers to a business that can get these answers right. In a sense it's kind of business survival of the fittest. Now for regular and attentive viewers you may start to say well this sounds very similar to what the Austrian school of economics advocated for in the last video in this series and you would be absolutely correct. The Austrian school falls broadly under the banner of laissez-faire capitalism, but even the most staunchly free market figureheads in this school still note that there is a place for government. Things like national defence and regulated court system for settling disputes, but at the very very edge of free market capitalism is the granddaddy of them all, anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho-capitalism is an economic philosophy that advocates for the complete Removal of any state in favour of completely free markets. What this means is that governments just would not exist, and instead, everybody would become completely independent agents. Now, of course, the first logical thought is that this would be complete anarchy, and even Murray Rothbard, the Austrian economist that founded this economic ideology, admits that there is likely to be some level of violence if this kind of system was introduced overnight. But long term, The self-interest of people to accumulate wealth and resources for themselves would outweigh the motivation to go to war because the destruction caused by this would almost inevitably be a lose-lose. Now big disclaimer time, most economists, myself included, argue that this defense is pretty weak, but maybe that's okay because people can incorporate private militaries into their way of living. Taken to its logical extreme, this whole theory almost comes full circle. A land without government means every man for themselves, but this causes issues in the sense that mankind does really well by working collectively. Remember Adam Smith and the problem of the pin? No one man can wake up in the morning and make a single pin. That would require mining metal, refining that metal, forging and sharpening it, all which would take a single man a lot of time and a lot of effort. In a healthy and functioning economy though. People can just divide this labor and trade the profits of the final product to make everybody wealthier, but this might be a little bit more difficult in an every man for himself scenario. All that being said, we could assume that eventually people will form corporations or guilds or communities or whatever you want to call it, just don't call it a country. There will be miners and farmers and factory workers, maybe all protected by a communal security force and oh yep. Suddenly you've got yourself a government all over again, right? Well, The only difference is that there would still hypothetically be an element of choice and there would be no clear borders between different working communities. For example someone might be a member of the blue construction community. They work in a blue factory and if they are ever threatened they call their blue security emergency services. For the privilege of doing so they pay a portion of their income to the blue central authority. But one day our hypothetical worker wakes up and reads that red construction community has lower taxes, better working conditions and a stronger security force, so they decide to take their labor there instead. In our modern state run capitalist world this would mean moving to an entirely different country in its own geographic area. This would cause many issues of moving away from friends and family even before you consider the difficulties of getting a working visa or citizenship in another country. In a perfect anarcho-capitalistic world, our hypothetical worker could move from the blue construction community to the red construction community without having to move at all. In fact the whole process should be as simple as just changing jobs. There is actually technically an example of this today. It's obviously not a real community or country or whatever you want to call it, but this system is remarkably similar to the player run corporations of eve online. So. Go watch our video series on that if you want to learn more. Nonetheless the prevailing thought amongst economists is that this theory would never work. Eventually these communities would just draw defined borders, expand their territory and exert dominance over less organized working communities. And in the words of Rick Sanchez, you hated the stupid government so much you became a stupid government. But if nothing else, the logical extreme of capitalism makes for a very interesting thought experiment that sheds some light onto the nature of humanity. Communism and laissez-faire capitalism along with all of the sub-ideologies they encompass are at extreme opposite ends of the economic spectrum. As with anything that is taken to an extreme, they tend to fail and slowly move back towards a more logical middle ground. But that doesn't mean that there aren't productive takeaways from both of the teachings of these systems though. The best economies in the world today realize that everything should be used in moderation. The government controlling everything is a recipe for disaster, but letting the free market take the wheel is equally as reckless. Some things governments do really well. They provide public goods, provide national defense, and offer security to those that don't have utility in a pure system of unfettered capitalism, but all the same. There are things that governments do terribly. Producing goods and services, leave that up to the business whose existence literally depends on it. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest video. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. This video is made possible by our patrons over on Patreon, so if you enjoy these videos, please consider supporting the channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys, bye.